Episode 41 of Doc Fermento Discovers the World. Today we're discovering the world of Dr. Emily Deans. I'll read to you from Emily's Twitter bio. It says, I am a psychiatrist searching for evolutionary solutions to our 21st century mental health problems. I love, I love this um, bio. I think it's very interesting. And especially the evolutionary approach to psychiatry. I'm still trying to understand it myself and what it means and how it can be useful in everyday life. I obviously have no psychiatric training. That's why I'm, well, I'm an idiot. So I'm just trying to understand what this actually means, evolutionary psychiatry. And it was ahead of really fun conversation with Emily. We didn't get in, we didn't go down any uh, rat holes too far. Didn't fall into any um, pitfalls or traps, I don't think. Pretty light conversation considering the weight of the matter, uh, mental health. I had a lot of fun. I would like to say, you know, I, I just didn't talk a lot in this episode. I have a problem right now. I can't get highly excited or talk a lot or I erupt into a coughing fit. So that's why I've been using that computer intro for the past few episodes. I can't really talk too much. So here's my interview with Emily Deans, MD. She is Evolutionary Psy on Twitter. And I really hope you all enjoy this. You know, the takeaway from this one is it's sleep, diet, and stress reduction. You don't need to listen. Sleep, diet, Stress reduction. There you go. I just saved you an hour. Ha <laughs> Enjoy the show. And, of course, the sponsors that make this show possible. You know, they're not really sponsors. It's an overstatement. These are affiliates. So, it's a bit of a farce. They're not paying me to mention their names. I'm mentioning their name to hope, in the hopes that you'll buy their product so that they'll then pay me, you see. So I really have to compel you to purchase from these vendors. The first one is Audible. Audible is known for their audiobooks. You've probably heard of them. They advertise on every single podcast. So if you're already a member of Audible, I apologize in advance. But... If you are new to Audible, or perhaps your credit card expired and you have a new email address, you could sign up again for a free 30-day trial. What this means is you go to, this is pretty simple, audibletrial.com slash docfermento. And there you can get a free audiobook. You're going to get a free 30-day trial, which means if you cancel within that 30 days, You've just got yourself a free audiobook. How cool is that? Or you can continue with your membership and pay the monthly fee, which includes one credit per month, which is equal to, in most cases, one audiobook per month. Now, one trick I do is get very expensive audiobooks. I like to get lectures by professors. Those usually cost well, like $50, $60 for a, a full lecture. 
I like Professor Drought, um, his series Away With Words. And those are very expensive, yet you can get one for only $15, which is the, you know, it's, that's the equivalent of one credit on Audible. So you could even start with one of those lectures, uh, Away With Words, and get that for free at audibletrial.com forward slash docfermento. The second affiliate I would like to mention is the Total Transformation Program. You've heard this advertised on radio, TV, I don't know. They're, they're all over the place. I don't consume a lot of media, so I don't hear their ads anymore, but I've been told they still advertise a lot. So this is the Total Transformation Program. My link so that I get credit is through needhelpparenting.com. Go there for more details. Basically, if you have uh, an oppositional or defiant teen, you need to get this program. Um, You'll thank me later. If you want to prevent getting a oppositional or defiant teen, use a condom or get this program and you will learn how to teach your children problem-solving skills. Problem-solving skills. That's where it's at right there. All right? So you'll go to needhelpparenting.com for more details. And I thank you for putting up with these ads. Hi, Dr. Deans. Hi. It's Brian. Brian, how are you? Very good. I hope, um, I've got Dora on in the background. I hope it's not too loud. So. I'm sure it'll be just fine. Nice background music, but I might get a DMCA takedown, though, <laughs> for copyrighted material on the show. Well, hopefully nobody who listens to Dora will be listening to this podcast. <laughs> I don't know. i got a lot of... I think there's a lot of parents, so... Evolutionary psychiatry seems to be uh, the topic we'll be discussing today. That's right. (laughs) Whatever that means. Whatever that means, there's the problem. Now, I've asked a few people, and I always get the, well, I don't know, it's kind of this or kind of that, and I I never really get a clear understanding of this. What is psychiatry without the evolutionary perspective? Psychiatry, uh, psychiatry is the medical discipline of uh, treating mental illness for the most part. And it's kind of a combination of the biology of mental illness and sort of the old-fashioned psychoanalysis and psychotherapy and all that. So you sort of have to be good at both, kind of being able to treat people with psychosocial interventions and then also if you need to medication. So that's what psychiatry is. And evolutionary psychiatry is sort of my, when you think about it as an academic discipline, I think there's a very specific meaning, which is there's this huge discipline called evolutionary psychology, which is really how evolution is played into our relationships. You know, why men are like men and women are like women and, you know, what do people do in groups? And, and it's, it's fairly, it's a huge field. It's a bit controversial, But with psychiatry, 
it's re- what they it's what evolutionary psychology calls abnormal psych. So do any do we have any genetic advantages, you know, from being schizophrenic or from being depressed or from this? You know, why would that why would those risk genes persist in the genome? So that's kind of the academic definition of it, but it's not exactly, you know, I do some of that on my blog, but it's there's not that much of that and it's not really it's it's kind of interesting, but it doesn't help you change your life or anything like that. So my blog is really about how differences in our lifestyles and our nutrition and our sleep and everything, you know, in our modern lives, how that may be contributing to psychopathology. And, you know, is depression, bipolar disorder, anorexia, uh, bulimia, you know, are those more diseases of civilizations, just like obesity and hypertension and uh, appendicitis and all the tooth decay and all the diseases of civilization that we know about. And I've I think that they are. They've certainly been growing um, in the population, particularly in the last 50 years. And that's one of those, you know, they're, they're associated with autoimmune diseases. They're associated with obesity. They're associated with with, with uh, diabetes. So if you happen to have type 2 diabetes, you're actually more likely to have bipolar disorder. You're more likely to be have depression. And if you have depression or bipolar disorder, you're more likely to have type 2 diabetes. So since they all track together, I kind of think of them all as diseases of civilization. So my blog's about figuring out why that might be. Huh. So you have no lack of work right now. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, it's, it's kind of a big topic, but it's, it's kind of fun because, you know, in, in psychiatry, there's not, there are two directions you can kind of go, um, which is one direction you can kind of get really into psychoanalysis and psychotherapy and there are these advanced training schools and all the techniques and everything like that. The other direction to go is to get really into uh, psychopharmacology. But there's, you know, Prozac and Zoloft and all that and how do they work and this and that. But that industry, you know, is really corrupt by the pharmaceutical industry and mm-hmm. Um, it's also, you don't, you could say all you want about how they work, but we don't really, really know exactly how they work. So you can say, oh, well, this, you know, increases the affinity for the 5-HT2, you know, T2A receptor, mm-hmm. blah, 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 and this and this. And you can get into all this nitty gritty, but we have no idea what that means on a clinical level. So ultimately, it just, you can really dig into it and memorize all sorts of stuff, but it just seems empty to me. So wanting to learn more and interested in things, this was a new direction, a new way to kind of focus what I was reading about, what I was thinking about, and a way that I felt was really practical. So that's why I started my blog, to kind of give myself accountability. So your education and background is just a traditional um, psychiatry degree, an MD Right. Yep. I have a molecular biology undergrad, and then I went to medical school, and then um, I did a psychiatry residency at Harvard. And um, after that, I just started a, a kind of a general psychiatry practice, adult psychiatry. So, and so basic you, stuff. Okay. And then, so you discovered the evolutionary angle uh, later, or is this always a part of it for you? Um, later. Really, you know, after a few years after I graduated residency, it really kind of crystallized. I mean, that had always been a piece of, particularly in the case of things like uh, anxiety treatment and stuff like that, because that's always been seen as sort of a mismatch. Why we're anxious now, it's kind of a mismatch between our 
fight or flight system and and uh, the modern world of chronic stress and our fight or flight system, which would be extremely useful if you were attacked by a tiger. So mm-hmm. back in the day, you know, you were attacked by a tiger and, and your heart would race and your cortisol would go up and your muscles would get stronger and you'd be able to run faster and your eyes would dilate and, and uh, you would shunt blood away from your gut to your muscles and, and, and all that's terrific if you're running away from a tiger. I mean, we even actually, your platelets change shape so that you clot more easily. Um, when you're in this kind of an anxious fight or flight state, um, which is great, again, if you've been bitten by a tiger. <laughs> but, you know, if it's just watching the news and seeing all this horrible stuff and just feeling tense all the time and maybe your house is being foreclosed and so you're in this chronic state all the time, you have all this excess energy and it become, you know, it turns into anxiety attacks and panic attacks. So there's always been that kind of idea in... Um, and certainly that part of treatment of psychiatry, that part of our illness is a mismatch between what we're sort of evolved for and what we actually face in this modern world. But not a whole lot of it went so far as to, um, you know, the diet, sleep, the kind of things that I look into mm-hmm. in great detail, and to really just kind of use the entire framework of evolution as a basis for looking at all of psychopathology and all of... Uh, biochemistry. So is there a lot, is there something to be said for, so this evolution has um, created our genome over time through pressure and time. Um, But what about, there's a role that epigenetics plays, the pressures that we receive in our daily lives, right? Yeah. Is it still evolutionary? Uh, Shoot, I'll just, I grab anything that's interesting, (laughs) go play in biochemistry in our genes. I mean, this is kind of my way to look at hardcore biologic psychiatry. Uh, in sort of a rational way, but epigenetics there are really two definitions. There's just sort of this basic definition. The more general definition is, you know, how do our ge- how are our genes expressed in order to, and how does that change in order to deal with our our current environment, the food we're eating, the stress that we're under, you know, whether or not you were uh, abused as a kid or not, that changes how your genes are expressed. So that's one definition, and this a second definition also would include, okay, how are your offspring's genes expressed based on what happened to you? And there's, I think there's a lot less known about that, mm-hmm. but it does, it does include the epigenetics because, you know, that's how, it's how therapy works, right? You right. get a little bit wiser about yourself. Mm-hmm. You learn how to cope better. And instead of the next time the same thing happens, instead of kind of, you know, maybe getting angry or yeah. throwing a fit and getting arrested, you know, you decide, Hey, I'm going to choose a different path maybe handle it a lot better. And you do that because you've changed the way that you're, that you handle stress and you've learned and learning has to be, you know, has to be expressed in our proteins and our brain, which has to be expressed in how the genes are expressed. So epigenetics definitely plays a role. That's interesting. It kind of reminds me of a book I had read recently called you are not your brain. And it was just the idea that, um, well, for phrasing for them, for, for, you know, a way to communicate it, they basically are making the argument that, you know, you have your brain that functions and that's you, but you have your mind and your mind can help control your brain, (laughs) especially like, um, deceptive brain messages, misinterpretations that your brain naturally makes. Well, with training, you can use your mind to calm that quell, you know, these deceptive messages that you actually create yourself. Yeah, and that's a very, it's sort of a very Eastern idea that 
that they also use in mindfulness training or Zen training where we are not our thoughts. We are not our body. We are not our emotions. We're sort of this uber being on top of all of those. And you don't have to let your thoughts uh, create who you are. And you don't have to let your emotions create who you are. You can kind of observe and stand back and figure out, okay, you know, where do I want to, if this thought is coming, what do I do with it? You know, where is it coming from? What's the core belief that it stems from? Is that a correct core belief so that you can become sort of like the eyeball on top of the pyramid, you know, in a, on the dollar bill and say, you know, and be wise, you know, and give yourself, figure out what you want to do instead of being driven to do stuff by our base animal instincts or whatever whatever it is. <laughs> so what do you think, what, well, in your experience, um, what are, what is bringing people into your office to see you, to seek treatment? What are some of the, um, the common, most common things? Is it diet, stress, injury? What are the things you see? Primarily it's stress. You know, I have pretty basic suburban practice, you know, sort of middle class, working class kind of folk, and they're really struggling with the recession. Almost everybody, you know, I have to say, if you weren't working in healthcare and you weren't, your brother wasn't the head of the company, um, you pretty much lost your job since 2007, at least once, and uh, at least in my patient population. And, uh, and it's been really tough. So I've seen a lot of, I see a lot of anxiety, a lot of depression, some substance abuse, um, do those go hand in hand? Absolutely. Yep. Oh, yeah. They both kind of make each other worse. So you know? one, one can one can bring about the other. Yeah. Either way. Yep. So that's generally what I see. So I see mm-hmm. some, you know, schizophrenia, some dementia, some of the some bipolar disorder, you know, some of the more serious mental illness, but I'd say the vast majority is uh, depression, anxiety, substance abuse, a lot of but, you know, when someone comes in, they're always a little, you know, there's a little bit of the metabolic syndrome going on. Maybe there's a little bit of obesity. There's a little bit of, you know, and a lot of them don't eat very well or can be pretty impulsive. or Right. So this goes back to what you were saying about the Western civilization, the modernization of the diet, corporate food, fast food, junk food. Right. This has a massive impact on mental health. Well, you know... The brain and the heart, because they're very metabolically active, they use a lot of energy, and they're somewhat delicate. Uh, the brain and the heart are sort of the canaries in the coal mine. Maybe the liver, too, though the liver is a lot more, a lot tougher. Mm-hmm. So you're going to get your first symptoms, your cardiovascular disease, high blood pressure, obese, you know, and then I think you're also going to get your anxiety, your depression, decreased resilience, basically, to stress with a crappy diet. For me, my... Well, my thing, you know, because of my uh, strong education and clinical background, <laughs> just a joke, um, is the gut health. Um, the gut-brain axis has been a study of mine for the past year or two. And a listener had even written in and asked about uh, the gut-brain axis without using those words. Right. Uh, so do you think that plays a key role as well? I think it's huge. I think we don't fully understand it. And it's hard to even be practical about it because we know so little, but there it's potentially it's huge. I mean, obviously the gut, you know, in our skin bacteria and everything else, but all told it's 90% of the cells in our body, certainly our gut bacteria certainly communicate with our brain via the vagus nerve and they may communicate via neurotransmitters 
And certainly we have mouse experiments showing that, that you know, your gut changes in your gut bacteria change how you react to situations and or at least how mice react to, situ- to situations. And I see no reason why that wouldn't apply to, um, to humans. And in addition, you know what I see along with, you know, your obesity and your, all the, you know, I see a ton of, you know, irritable bowel and, you know, gassy troubles, mm-hmm. constipation, you know, that, that comes part, you know, part and parcel with depression and anxiety, particularly anxiety. And they um, track with each other considerably. And, yeah, and those situations are quite literally stressful. <laughs> exactly. So yeah. it, you know, IBS makes your anxiety worse and anxiety makes your IBS worse. And sometimes, you know, treating an anxiety with, say, a SSRI helps the IBS, but not the anxiety. Sometimes it helps the anxiety, but not the IBS. Sometimes it helps neither. Sometimes it helps mm-hmm. both. Um, so it's it's sort of very mysterious what's what's going on. So recently you spoke at the Ancestral Health Symposium. Yes. This year it was AHS 12. What was your topic? My topic was originally what not to eat for good mental health, but I just focused it on some stuff that I was kind of interested in, which was because I – had originally applied for a 40 minute talk, but was downgraded to 20 minutes. Um, so I just focused on trans fats and carbohydrates. Okay. Trans fats and carbs. Right. Trans fats as in what not to eat. Now what's the carb angle? The trans fats is quite obvious. Right. No. And partly the reason I did trans fats was, just because I hadn't really looked at it closely before and I was kind of interested in how much evidence was there that it affected the brain. Certainly it causes people to drop dead of uh, sudden cardiac death. Um, and there's some evidence to connect it to the brain, but, and also to sort of see, okay, where are trans fats hiding? You know, I'm sure all of us like to cheat. All of us are, you know, maybe taking road trips and you have to stop by the Long John Silvers, <laughs> maybe the only place to eat. And so, you know, how do you make choices about that. So that's why I did the trans fats. The carbohydrates I did because you just hear exactly opposite things. You'll hear, you know, certainly people have written me, you know, ever since I stopped eating carbohydrates altogether, you know, every I'm I'm like the Dalai Lama and mm-hmm. everything everything is cured in my life. Mm-hmm. Yet, you know, a lot of the studies of carbohydrates show that uh, low carb diets can lead to uh, depression possibly they're correlated uh and mechanistically and again it's a little bit controversial as Mm -hmm. well you need carbohydrate to kind of pump up your insulin a little bit in order to get uh, tryptophan into the brain and uh tryptophan is the precursor for serotonin so theoretically you know low carbohydrate diets could make you um, incredibly theoretical. There's no mm-hmm. evidence that this happens. It can make you have symptoms of low serotonin, which typically is violence, um, poor sleep, and uh, not necessarily depression, but sort of suicidal thoughts or impulsively mm-hmm. suicidal thoughts. I think I, from reading in the blogosphere, I think it just makes people angry and single-minded. <laughs> well, I was having this, this discussion with a very well-known blogger that there's a similarity. There's almost a religion that people, they become obsessed, sort of very obsessive on VLC. Mm-hmm. And 
it, it you know, and also you'll see on blogs, um, descriptions of anxiety attacks, but you know what? It can't be the diet. It's gotta be some lack of supplement something or something else. Right. And, but this whole religious sort of conversion over to it, it actually really reminds me of veganism, which is fun, you know, because the vegans will sort of be the same way. So, and it's interesting because they would both have the same mechanism to make you pretty obsessive. Um, another low serotonin, um, symptom is actually obsessiveness. So, you could see how a vegan may be more obsessive because uh, they don't get a whole lot of tryptophan in their diet because it's really more prevalent in meat and animal products. And you could see how a VLC person, they might get plenty of tryptophan, but it may not be getting past the blood-brain barrier because of this whole carbohydrate insulin issue. Um, I, you know, there's no, I'm kind of theorizing here. There's kind of no sure. data for this, but... It, they are very similar. I mean, I would have to say, you know, if I see a vegan arguing and I see a pure hardcore VLC kind of person arguing, I, I see these similarities of this yeah. obsessiveness and this yeah, there's sort that. of a nasty, hostile edge to sure. it as well. Yeah, some of the common language they're using is that carbohydrates are not a, an essential nutrient. That's the new thing they're, they're touting. And there's probably a lot of things we can do without essentially but yeah. but that's not a way to live. Your your life is about a, a range of a very broad and hopefully brilliant, bright, loving, happy, you know, experience. And a lot of that has to do with carbohydrate foods. You know, some of them well, obviously toxic if they're junk foods, but there are pleasurable carbohydrate foods. So you know, they're totally discounting quality of life. But I also think that the onus is on the VLC people to prove that we don't need carbohydrates because every, you know, every civilization that you kind of look back with the possible exception of the Inuit, you know, they all ate plenty of carbs. So, and they, there are many, many very healthy civilizations where they are, you know, hunter gatherers or horticulturalists, et cetera, who eat plenty of carbohydrates. So I don't think it causes your eating plenty of carbohydrates does not cause your pancreas to poop out. You know, I think that's a ridiculous theory. However, I always vacillate on these things because I do think there is some that the uh, ketogenic diet could be therapeutic, certainly for things like Alzheimer's disease, possibly autism, possibly other kind of advanced neurodegenerative disorders. And there may be a place for it in even things like bipolar disorder. That's very early stuff. There's not a whole lot of data with that. But but then you're using a diet as, as a really as a pharmaceutical. It's very similar to a mood stabilizer called Depakote. Um, so that may have a place, but I don't see why you would do that unless you really had to. Yeah, I do a ketogenic cycling for fun. Yeah. And also for fat loss when I was, uh, well, just for tinkering as, along with a paleo style diet. I like cycling through ketogenic phases. And um, it works really well for me. I think I get really great brain results and for blood sugar stabilization. So it is fun to experiment with. I don't know if you're, al- if you're allowed to tell someone to go ahead and experiment with a ketogenic diet, but um, I think it's perfectly safe and um, from what I've read. And um, you can get some pretty good results. Now, right. have you ever seen anything um, clinical especially regarding, say, some of these more modern problems such as uh, ADHD or autism or anything like that with ketogenic therapy? 
personally, no. I mean, because I partly because I don't see children. Okay. I'm like an adult practice, um, but you know, people have written me. I haven't. There is a pilot study of a ketogenic diet in autism. Um, I'm not aware of any in ADHD. And in the pilot study, it you know it worked in about sixty percent of the kids had some significant improvement. And you can see why. I mean, it's autism has a lot of uh, neuroinflammation and energetics problems, and you can see how a, a ketogenic diet could help that. But I'm kind of with you in that I think, practically speaking, that th- there may be some temporary advantages to ketosis in the brain, and certainly you know for epilepsy or brain cancer or things like that, it, there may be a more kind of where you'd have to be stuck down there, but um, that it could spur, you know, neurogeneration repair, that it could kind of make you more metabolically flexible by kind of dancing with fat. um. Yeah, the flexibility issue especially. I love that because to me it kind of, it's kind of like educating your mind by reading. It's like when you can teach your body to cycle on and off of ketones, it's like you're re-educating your body again and it just gives you a greater flexibility right and it also you know i think it also teaches you because one of the fastest way to get into ketosis anyway is to fast and as long as you don't have kind of a binging or sort of terrible eating disorder history i think that there's a great there's sort of a again, almost like a Buddhist aesthetic sort of pleasure in fasting and saying, you know Mm -hmm. what, I don't have to have food. I'm okay. If I feel a little weak, if I feel a little strange, I'm going to keep going. I'm okay. Mm -hmm. And it kind of removes that power that food has over you so that you can sort of choose to eat and choose to eat when you want and what you want. And it's all right to be hungry for a few hours. That that, that sensation is pleasurable. As you do it and become a practitioner of it, you actually get stronger at it. You're your blood sugar levels normalize over time. You don't crash. You don't, I know this just from with my kids, um, changing their diet from a, basically a grain based diet to to completely eliminating that over the course of the past year and a half, their behavior overall is remarkably improved because they never crash and burn. You know how a child just melt down in front of your eyes even just driving in a car, they just lose their freaking minds. They even make TV right. commercials about it. You know, give your kid a Snickers bar because, <laughs> you know, it's sugar crashing and it's gone. That just, that went away. Yeah. I mean, I think, oh, it's, it's a travesty what, what kids are fed and it's just everywhere and it's sort of acceptable that kids aren't supposed to eat. You know, they have to have the kids meal and it's all, it's garbage and you know, they're allowed to have Teddy Grahams and all this stuff that adults, it's sort of not standard adult fare, but it's all marketed to kids. And it's just, it's a disaster because it's so much of the calories that they eat. You'd be fine if it were every once in a while. I mean, you know, let's have a cookie. It's fun. But, um, but now it's cookies every day and breakfast is these sparkly sugary cereals with skim milk. And, you know, it's been part of our experience. I, have three little kids and it's a it's someone's birthday every day (laughs) so birthday cake's no longer special you know and i teach the kids this no it's not your special day it's cake is not associated with birthdays this is a myth this is just some modern creation i i really i spin everything around i just don't like to teach my kids stupid 
oh, rituals, behaviors of modern life, there's no reason for a birthday cake to be associated with a birthday. It doesn't need to exist. So I've been trying to erase that from my kids' minds, and they kind of have fun with it. We just make up new things, you know? Because like I said, it's a birthday cake every day, everywhere we go. It's, you know, someone, you got 24 kids in a classroom, there's a lot of birthdays happening. They bring in cookies and treats, but I can see how it's pretty difficult. Right, but and even you know even the so-called healthy snacks are goldfish crackers and you know yeah. I mean it's it's not something that and goldfish aren't the worst thing in the world and they'll keep you alive but they're fairly devoid of any sort of the nutrients that I'm very interested in other than calories for the kids to kind of keep going right and so you just sort of see how they're sort of stuck. And with kids, they can't say, oh, I'm feeling really tired and freaky and kind of go off to themselves or do sort of what adults do. And so, or if they're having any stomach distress, it doesn't come out as, sometimes it comes out as I have a tummy ache, but sometimes it comes out as a temper tantrum. Mm-hmm. So I think a lot of the physical symptoms that that we might feel from a crappy diet uh, come out as behavior and kind of uh, acting out in children. Have you ever looked into... Um the idea of autism or yeah autism and the gut the relation to the the mother's gut initially and then also the gut condition of a newborn baby that's autistic have you ever looked into that yeah i don't know so much i i don't think i've looked into the mother's gut so much mm-hmm. though there are links between for example serotonin and dopamine levels and the mother's uh, in the placenta blood and things like that and what reaches the brain and the baby and that a serotonin deficiency in the mother can possibly lead to ADHD symptoms, at least ADHD in the, in the kid. Um, but there's certainly a lot about autism in the gut. A lot of it's a little bit wooey, mm, but, sure. um, Certainly, you know, kids with autism have many more gut complaints than an average than average children. And you know, when you look at their um, gut flora, they've actually done studies of the gut flora of kids with autism, and they tend to be quite different than kids who don't have autism. And so, you can see how that would may possibly be playing a great role in the inflammation and yeah. in continuing what's going on. Yeah, I've even heard it compared to the condition of an Alzheimer's patient's gut flora. Very similar. Well, there's actually a lot of similarities. Some in the genes, some in the um, in the pathologies. It's somewhat different areas of the brain, but it's very similar between schizophrenia, autism, and uh, dementia. Is and this, with, let me change the subject entirely. Is there any chance that these new, I don't know if they're new diseases or old, um, Alzheimer's, autism, are evolutionary defenses just to keep a person alive? Is that is that possible? Um, I think they're results of inflammation and, you know, I'm trying to, I'm trying to bit- think of a reason why they would still be here. And if it prolongs someone's life, if they didn't develop this disease, but instead died, then it would favor this disease, um, having a chance to flourish. If, if certain conditions were met, you know, preserving life is a is a strong evolutionary force. Right. And there's certainly a lot of data for that with schizophrenia. And depression. Okay. Um, but I don't I'm not aware of dementia. And it's hard to imagine dementia 
you know, obviously, you know, if your older relatives were getting demented back in their gather days, you know, and they couldn't keep up, you know, they kind of died off fairly quickly. Um, and then the other thing that kind of goes against sort of dementia being so much evolutionary is, for example, the Katavans, you know, and 6,000 of them, none of them had ever heard of anybody with dementia. They didn't even know what it meant. Mm-hmm. So it's hard to imagine that being kind of a normal human a normal human um, kind of state. Sure. I'm sorry. I have a... Uh, I hear her whispering there. So. <laughs> She's wanna... hungry. Let me just get her something really quick. Right ahead. back? Yeah. Of course, she hasn't eaten her dinner of steak and vegetables, so... Oh, she skipped? Yeah. Yeah. I have a son that... My oldest son, he doesn't know how to eat. He just... We didn't teach him properly. He was raised on goldfish crackers and macaroni and cheese. Mm-hmm. And I, I had he he's the most difficult eater I have. The two younger ones were raised nearly paleo, and they're they're just fantastic eating machines. But it's the kid raised on mac and cheese, not so much. I we have a lot of difficulty giving him good food. Mine are actually pretty good as long as I and they'll eat pretty much anything as long as I threaten or bribe them enough. Mm-hmm. Sure, <laughs> but. Uh, she's a little bit harder to the younger one's a little bit harder if she's just not hungry or if she's not into it, mm-hmm. um, which is fine. You know, and it doesn't bother me too much. And then she'll eat it later. It's not a big deal. Yeah. But uh, yeah, yeah. I just but, I track things. You know, behavior, alertness, things like that. Kind of my my guide whether a kid needs to eat or not. It doesn't stress me out if a kid doesn't eat. They'll make up for it. Well, it's funny because I insist, you know, they basically eat what we eat and they kind of get the leftovers of dinner or whatever for lunch the next day. And one of the teachers pulled me aside and I looked around, you know, at the classroom where these kids are and the different meals they were getting. And it's, you know, goldfish crackers and go-gurt mm-hmm. and peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and that kind of stuff. And so and my kids are getting, you know, beef stew and right. um you know, okra and vegetables and stuff like that. And the teacher says, you know, Lily doesn't always like her lunch. You know, is it okay if she doesn't eat? And I said, sure. And she was sort of horrified that this child wouldn't eat. I'm like, I don't care if she doesn't eat. She'll be more hungry later. Yeah. And then she'll eat whatever. And there's this whole, it was this whole sort of idea that a child cannot go hungry for an, yep. a couple of hours. And I, they have, mm-hmm. they even called it at the, at the preschool, it kind of annoyed me because they didn't call it, you know, snack, lunch, and later they call it first snack, second snack, and third snack. Wow, no meals, just right. snacks. Yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah, I got just, pulled aside last year when my son was in kindergarten, two or three times, and was told that on a couple of occasions my son was still hungry. I, I packed his lunch every day, the whole year last year, and I got pulled yeah. aside, and they said um, he was hungry. After finishing his lunch, and um, they were very, they were concerned. And I said, you know, I, I pack a pretty stout lunch for him, and his hunger. I, I don't understand why, you know, their their concern, like he's not being treated properly or cared for. He's just a little bit extra hungry, and I, you know, to me, I was just, I just rolled my eyes, and they think I'm some crazy parent or something, but. Yeah, well, I know with my youngest, she's a pretty big kid. For her, she's really tall uh, for her age. She's about almost two years taller than she should be. <laughs> wow. um, and she's three. Um, 
but she's, you know, perfectly healthy. She's never, actually never been on antibiotics or anything, knock on wood, Mm -hmm. but, um, never been to the doctor except for her well visits. And, uh, I have to pack her an extra snack just because the, the food, you know, real food is so much, it's so much harder to get it into the little lunchbox that they have. Yeah. Right. right. <laughs> Cause you just need so much more food to make up the calories and the kind mm-hmm. of, you know, a hundred calorie pack of Teddy grams is a lot smaller than a hundred calories of real food. Like yeah. that's like a whole banana. Yeah. You know? Kind of. And you can't just necessarily shove a piece of liver in your kid's lunchbox. <laughs> it's probably not going to get eaten. Right, there's that too. Um, I had a specific question a listener asked me about bipolar kids, and um, I'm not sure how she asked it, but not using medications. Any recommendations? That's a tough one because there's a lot of controversy about bipolar disorder in kids. Um, I think when it really comes down to it, it exists. And it tends to be very bad. And these are the kids who are, their behavior is so bad that they're the ones who get kicked out of daycare, you know, or kicked out of, of pre-K. And it also pr- tends to be pretty rapid cycling. It's, it's a lot of the same um, symptoms as adult bipolar disorder. So you might have be grandiose, you might not be sleep, you might not sleep, you might be very irritable, and then you also might be quite depressed and morose and low energy. Um, but it can happen instead of in an adult that might happen over a series of several weeks or months where you might be high energy and kind of manic or hypomanic for a period of several weeks and then depressed for a period of several months. Um, but in a kid, it can actually cycle through a lot of moods in a single day. Mm, okay. And then these kids are much more likely to develop. The reason they think it's related is because these kids are more likely to develop um, into a, a standard adult bipolar disorder later in life when they follow these kids. Okay. So, is this, and is this is this similar or an extension or a worsening of, say, a borderline personality? Um, you know, it's hard to talk about borderline personality in kids because borderline personality is a lot to do with trauma and sensitivity and and not sort of being able to process things one hundred percent as as an adult. So kids are automatically, you know, two-year-olds are borderline. That's, they're supposed to be. That's, that's how they process things. Um, so, but in adults, borderline personality disorder can be misdiagnosed as bipolar. And some of the same kind of treatments can help the symptoms of both. And they can have, they have a lot of overlap. So it gets kind of tricky. Um, but I don't, you know, it's hard to say a little kid, you know, kid, a little kid isn't going to have borderline personality. It's just, just not mm-hmm. appropriate to do that. It's more of a late teen adult diagnosis. So same thing for the bipolar child. Is this, is this real or misdiagnosis? I or? think in some cases it's misdiagnosis um, of ADHD or um, other issues. But I think in some cases it's the real deal. Uh, Particularly, I mean, it's... It, if a kid's bipolar, it tends to be, like I said, really bad. I mean, these kids are behavior so out of control that they get kicked out of school. You know, mm-hmm. it's not just, you know, Timmy pitching a fit and or just kind of not paying attention or even sort of standard ADHD kind of behavior. It's It tends to be much, much worse. And I've seen this kind of thing, you know, when I was in residency training working on the inpatient uh, kids unit. I mean, these kids are really destabilized and their moods are all over the place and they have such a hard time. Um but it's it's a bit unusual. I think it's pretty rare. 
And so far as treating it, it's, it's such a serious condition and it, you know, it, it really interferes with functioning. So in these cases, you know, it's, you, it's hard to argue against having the cleanest possible diet that you can in these cases, because it's only going to help. That's like, obviously your first intervention is cleaning up the diet. And then it sounds like you're probably going to want to see many different people or clinicians or therapists to try to make sure you're the right match and that you're getting the right treatment you need for a kid in that serious state, right? Right. And you need to, you know, you need to beef up the family support and you need to Mm -hmm. say, okay, are, are there any behaviors in the family, which there usually are, that are contributing to the behavior. So it's a very complicated picture and you really have to be sort of aggressive in all places. There is some data for the pharmaceuticals for the childhood bipolar, but I have to say, you know, they, one of the big guys in the field, Dr. Biederman, who's a full professor of psychiatry at Harvard, uh, was found to have taken many millions and millions of dollars from the makers of uh, uh, psycho, uh, antipsychotic Risperdal. Mm-hmm. And he came out with paper after paper saying that Risperdal was really helpful for a childhood bipolar disorder. So it's, it's really hard to say. But at the same time, some kids do much better on the medications and they're functioning, they're going to school, life is doing their learning, sure. mm-hmm. you know. And so you wouldn't want to, you don't want to fix what ain't broke. Right. So that is a hard, it's a very personal, personalized question. It's a very difficult question. It's a very difficult situation. And you want to really, my mind, you would use whatever you can that works knowing, you know, that there are some side effects to some things or, you know, even a, a special diet has some side effects to some extent because, you know, maybe they're at the birthday party and they really, really love Spider-Man cake and they mm-hmm. have Spider-Man cake and you're saying, okay, well, you, you know, you really shouldn't have the Spider-Man cake and that can have social effects. And, sure. you know, Timmy's the one who always brings in the weird lunch. Yep. And, and so that it's not that these things are entirely without effects, though. I honestly wish there were a lot more societal support for just having our kids eat real food. I mean, it's ridiculous. Yeah. I hope that answers the question. <laughs> I, I think so. Or at least, give someone some calm and reassurance to, to move right. forward. Um, it seems, I just, I have such an interest in mental health. I, I think it's just one of the least, I don't know if it's just a taboo in our society or how long it's been this way, but um, it's, it's not something people talk about. Um, but I think I read one quarter of people have a mental health issue on a yearly basis. Shoot, 20% of Americans take psychotropics on a daily basis. Oh, God. Really? One in five people? Yeah, 20%. Hmm. 11% are on an antidepressant, which is, I find that an incredible number. What percentage of those people are actually dealing with the problem, the underlying causes, or are they just masking this? Do we know? Is there any idea? That I don't... I don't think I have the answer to your question, though I do have to say when you look at the data comparing, let's say, therapy to medication, uh, medication is really much more like a Band-Aid. Um, and sometimes you need a Band-Aid. If you're gushing blood, Sure, sure. by all means, put a Band-Aid on it. Yeah. But it, once you take the Band-Aid off, the Band-Aid isn't doing anything anymore. Whereas something like therapy, 
and these other lifestyle interventions, a clean diet, those kinds of things, that will continue to build and continue to help you for even years after you've been in therapy. So um, that's, but we're just conditioned now as a society to look for the pill, to look for the easy answer. And sometimes, you know, times are really hard. And if, you know, you're taking your mom and she has to get chemotherapy for her cancer and you're you know, kid was in a car accident and, you know, she lost a leg or something. And so you have to take her for her uh, physical therapy and stuff like that. And you're completely overwhelmed, but you're the only one who can work because yeah. your husband died or, you know, by all means, put use the Band-Aid sure. <laughs> so that you can keep functioning and keep going. But it's you can only do that for so long. Yeah. And use it as a tool for rehabilitation. Right. It's just one piece. Yeah. One piece of the large puzzle. Sure. And not the most important piece. But I think what you know what's interesting about mental health, and I, I think this is a why is it this sort of taboo thing to talk about? Nobody wants to admit about you know. Partly it's because nobody understands it. Partly because it can be scary. Mm-hmm. And in the old days, you know, the sh- the shaman in the tribe or whatever, he tended to live a little bit apart from the tribe. And partly that was because if sick people went to him, he would sort of absorb part of the, their illness, make it better and kind of take it away from the group. And in some respects, you know, psychiatry is sort of now the, sh- the, sh- the shamans of, or the shamans mm-hmm. of, of medicine, mm-hmm. where we look a little bit different. Nobody quite knows what we do. Right. There's a lot of disdain and disgust for psychiatry. Oh, you know, they're just... Has a bit of woo like, attached to it. Right. And to some extent, that those are fair characterizations. But to some extent, it's part of this whole casting out that which is poorly understood. So, yeah, but where does this leave you at the end of the day, though, when you've had all this dumped on you, these massive problems? I mean, you just gave us a little glimpse of some scenario, some horrible thing someone's dealing with. How do you process all that? Well, that comes with part of the training that we do. and, And part of it is just recognizing I'm not here necessarily to solve problems that I can't solve. Um, I'm here to kind of witness people's pain and to say, oh, look, I'm another human being. I care about you. I've heard you. We'll try to brainstorm what might make this easier. But part of it is just being there to witness you having this pain and and this coping and to just share that with someone. And knowing that that can be helpful is very soothing. You you can absorb some of it, but, but it's not, I guess, in this sort of a paleosphere kind of analogy is that you'll see trainers or, or family members, whoever get really frustrated with their family members or whoever they don't want to do paleo. And maybe they're still come to them complaining about their diabetic foot ulcers or their, I can't lose weight and they won't do it. And people get so frustrated because they mm-hmm. say, look, I have the solution right here. And right. you just have to, but you know, from my perspective, you could see this in a thousand different ways with a thousand different scenarios, nutrition over here, but also different coping mechanisms over here. But you just got to meet the person where they are and to say, look, here's a possibility. And you can't really internalize it if they don't do it. It's their own path and you got to let them have their own path. Yeah. So you have to teach pretty advanced problem solving skills, which requires you to have a massive tool bag of problem solving skills. Ways to approach problems, teach people to deal with things. So, Yeah, well, one of my psychiatry professors in residency said, he's actually a very famous psychiatrist. His name's George Valiant, and he kind of developed this whole 
the whole theory of defense mechanisms, which is kind of a huge basis for psychiatry nowadays. And he said, basically, the purpose of psychiatry residency is to treat you to have the wisdom of your grandparents, mm-hmm. you know, just so that mm-hmm. you can kind of step in and say, okay, you know, just like grandma did, who had seen, you know, troubles in five different marriages and yep. uh, in the family and what worked, what didn't, what were the type of people. So, yeah, this so is like the yeah. wisdom of the great elders, the Abrahams or whoever, the, the right, Solomons, yeah. you know, the, the wise I don't know if I have that, but, but you do, you know, when you talk to thousands of people and you talk about their problems and you see all these people and how they handle things, it certainly gives you a lot of perspective and a, a huge, again, a huge toolbox because mm-hmm. different things certainly work for different people. Yeah. How does a person know when they need to come to go see someone for help and who should they see first or what's the first step? Um, I think that just really, you know, the, the main, that you're just not functioning how you want to, that maybe you're starting to miss days of work because you're too depressed to go, or you're having outbursts that may, um, threaten your family or threaten your job, or, you know, maybe you got arrested or you had a DUI or, Mm -hmm. or something like that to say, you know, this is starting to be a real problem that's, that's affecting your functioning to a great extent. And usually people go to their primary care who most of the time they refer them to therapists first. So I mostly get referrals from therapists or primary care doctors. I would say 99, 98% of the people I see are already on medication. So I kind of don't get to jump in early and say, Hey, why don't we try all this stuff first? Um, and I do a lot of kind of cleanup after the fact. Um, so it's kind of like everything's everything's a little bit backwards. Like, yeah, the mental health with if the mental health were the first line of defense, then it might help keep this body healthier. Right. No, absolutely. It all it all comes together. Hmm. So, what are some of the interventions then? Um, some of the first uh, steps towards healing, regardless of what it is you have, whether it's uh, alcoholism or, um, you know, whatever psychiatric disorder. If it's not severe, if it's not to the point, I don't mean where someone needs hospitalized, a schizophrenic. I mean, you know, your, your daily annoyances or daily mental issues. What are some of the steps? Well, it really all comes down to sleep, diet, and uh, stress reduction. And stress reduction can take on in various ways depending on the person, their temperament, their lifestyle, what they're facing. So that's a very individualized approach. But everything's sleep, diet, and stress reduction or stress management. Stress management. Hmm. <clears throat> and then after that, you know, medication. And then again, sometimes, you know, if someone comes in and they're somebody just died and they haven't been sleeping for three, for four or five days, you know what, just give them a sleeping med for a few days so they can make friends with their bed again. Because if people go, you know, seven or eight days without sleeping, all of a sudden an acute insomnia can become a chronic insomnia. So sometimes you want to be very aggressive, but you know, you also don't want, don't want someone stuck on a sleeping medicine for the rest of their life. So you have to be pretty judicious. I mean, they can be life-saving. I mean, sleep deprivation can be horrible. Mm -hmm. And crash your car and die. Mm-hmm. So, 
Or yeah. you could crash your car on sleep meds. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> when you wake up and you're walking. People don't drive after taking their sleep meds. <laughs> Yeah, I think I've I've read I've seen many instances where people sleepwalk or um, on um, some of these sleep aids. I saw one report where people were claiming they were having sex with their partners and didn't and weren't awake. Oh yeah, no, that can absolutely, especially with Ambien, which Ambien. That's the one I was trying to think of. A, I didn't want to say gross, it. It's a kind of a gross medication. It's it's sort of like being hit on the head with a a sledgehammer mm-hmm. and you're actually you sort of unhook your your consciousness from your sleep and well, that's sort of a horrible it's, one it, it, it literally creates zombies i mean it's it's damn close you're not dead but <laughs> yeah you're no, walking I mean, I, wounded that's for sure on the other on the other side though they found they found elderly people who were on uh, benzodiazepine medication for sleep actually had fewer falls than those who were incredible, who weren't, you know, who had sleep troubles, but weren't on medication, Mm -hmm. which you would think that wouldn't make sense, but they were actually sleeping better and more alert and they weren't getting up in the middle of the night and as much and kind of running around in the dark. And and so they had fewer falls. So again, there's always a great, it would be great if we could all sleep great and be really well rested and we were never depressed and we all coped really well without medication or without, help or without seeing a psychiatrist. But if that's not an option, how do you balance the risks and benefits? Sure. And it's it's always a a complicated and personal question. Yeah, just take the Joel Salatin approach and basically work yourself till you're so tired you sleep. <laughs> you know, and I have people who do that and they thrive and they do great. Yeah, yeah. Um but other people are just lazier temperamentally, so That's me. Yeah. <laughs> I never fall asleep due to exhaustion. I, that's for sure. I often do. <laughs> Sometimes I'm lucky if I make it past eight thirty. Really? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And I would just prefer to stay awake all night. So. Well, that sounds kind of like my husband. His idea is, you know what? Sleep is a waste of time. Why would you spend a third of your life sleeping? <laughs> Doesn't make any sense. <laughs> Yeah, but then again, I would just sleep the day away. So <laughs> I'm a little bit well, different think, than that. With Once I think you've been through, um, I mean, early t- having kids when they're very young is one thing, but also residency where you're just not allowed to sleep and you get so sleep deprived that it becomes a sort of such a pleasure to, to be well rested oh, and okay. really yeah. get a good perspective on it. Well, I think I learned a few things today. So that was good. I hope so. I couldn't get too excited or talk too loud during this one because I have a horrible cough. And as soon as I get excited, it kicks off like really bad. Oh, dear. Or when I raise my voice. So this has been like three weeks now. So that's why I've been trying to kind of quiet, kind of subdued. Sorry about that. But Well, you know, my youngest, both mine are in preschool several days a week, or actually one of them just started kindergarten. My youngest gave me a cold that went on for three weeks it was horrible. And so mm-hmm. by the time AHS rolled around, I had been really sick and I was starting to get a sinus infection. So yeah, you that's just how gotta, mine started. Yep. You just got to take care of yourself and sleep. And sleep. I wasn't Yeah, to, yeah, I knew you were yeah. going to say that. I think this was really fun. And like I said, I, I definitely learned a few things and filled a few pages of no, notes here while we were talking. So super cool. Good. 
Well, it's all about problem solving and using common sense and molecular biology to do it. That's, that's kind of where I come from. Yeah, I love it. And the problem solving is, that's my big thing. I, I, I Problem solving skills are so key that so few people have that. Hey, are you familiar with, did you happen to see Dr. Armida Ayala at AHS? I don't know. You don't know. She did, she's the, um, she has, does an intervention in the low income urban environment in LA. No, she, I don't think Okay. Been. She does, uh, uh, for indigenous populations and, um, she's doing like a paleolithic intervention into the worst neighborhoods and she starts with nutrition and mental health. And she had actually reached out to me and talked to me a little bit about this gut brain axis, um, fermented foods, um, if they could be helpful and things like that. So I, I just thought I'd throw that out there for you to check out. She's brand new to the social networking. Mm-hmm. She's brand new to Twitter and she's just now emerging. And I think she's going to be a major, a major inspiration for the paleo movement because she's taken it to the urban environment, which I really dig. I, I really, it inspires me. So yeah, that's really cool. And some of the strongest evidence for kind of micronutrient behavior is actually is sort of similar. It was a social worker in Britain who would take kids to his house and, you know, at-risk kids or kids who are sort of delinquents to his house and feed them mm-hmm. real food instead of the garbage they were eating all day, you know, the chips and whatever they were eating all day. And, uh, and he's, he's done interventions with um, vitamins and omega-3s and stuff in the prison system and has come up with some really good data that actually does seem to improve behavior. Um, so it's really, you can do a lot. It's pretty spectacular yes. stuff. One of her entries to this is a smoothie, that, a green smoothie that she makes for kids. So I kind of like that. You know, it's going to get a kid to participate, possibly improve their health, and, you know, experience a health food as an enjoyable food. Right. So I, I love that angle. I'm not saying I think everyone should drink green smoothies, but you ha- like you said before, though, you have to you have to meet someone at their level or where they're at to move them forward. Right, but you can also make such a huge difference if it's really a bit of micronutrient deficiency and you can improve their behavior by 38%, which, mm-hmm. by the way, is what pretty much all these studies have shown that just adding a little bit of extra vitamins and minerals and the omega-3s can improve behavior and decrease violence. That's, you know, 38% is huge. Yeah, so what, what, what are some of the things... Um, I'd never really focus on these micronutrients, but what are some of the things... That are key. It's probably the same things I hear every day in the paleo sphere. D. Yeah. Uh, um, omega three. Omega threes, magnesium, zinc. I think the minerals and uh, the B vitamins are probably the most important to the brain. And D. Um, but I think a lot of us have mineral deficiencies, particularly magnesium. And magnesium controls sort of a break in our entire stress response. So. I think that that's probably key. Also, just having a lot of low nutrition calories. So you get a bunch of, and also people have a, who are intolerant of fructose or FODMAPs have a mm-hmm. lot of inflammation and problems and have low, again, more low issues with tryptophan getting in, so low serotonin. So I think that the common, you know, something like soda would be a double hit. It's a lot of cheap 
micronutrient devoid calories that's replacing real food. Plus, you know, if, if you're one of 30 to 50 percent of people of um, Western European descent who have uh, fructose, a little bit of fructose malabsorption, you know, that soda is kind of giving you a double whammy there. Mm-hmm. It's been associated with violence. You know, you're more likely to knife your girlfriend if you eat eight sodas a day. <laughs> so, Yeah, I imagine this the entire junk food spectrum would have the same result then. Yeah. yeah. And it just, it all follows the same, you know, it's, it's toxins, you know, low toxin, anti-inflammatory, micronutrient rich. Mm-hmm. Um, that's kind of how it all works. There's no magic to it. It's not that it's your paleo diet that you're genes are adapted to it's that um you know that's kind of just a baseline to start from why it works is because it's low toxin and micronutrient rich Mm -hmm. yeah empowering the mitochondria to do their work right empowering your brain and your your brain and And gain a greater consciousness and i'm hungry again hungry i kept you over a little bit so i'll let you Take care of those kids. All right. <laughs> and I thank you for your time. I, I really, really appreciate it. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Take okay. care. All right. Bye. Bye. Bye.